Hey everyone, and uh, welcome back to the program. It's Glenn, and it's been a while. It's nice to be back. Um, I moved across the country in October, and uh, and all of the stuff that comes with that has uh, has been weighing me down the last few months, um, kind of stifling my desire to make stuff. Um, but it's it's uh, feels good to to be doing this again. Um, I want to thank Andrew for uh, for not firing me during this absence. Um, he's been very gracious, telling me to you know release something whenever I have something to release, and, and kind of leaving this door open. So I'm grateful for that, and grateful to him. Um, he's continued to release episodes. Um, so if you haven't, please go back and listen to those. They're they're great as always, and he's got more stuff coming. Um, so what I'm going to share today is a story called Worried Sick. Um, and it's written, uh, I, I wrote it, and it's written in the spirit of something I heard Raymond Carver say, or something I read that was attributed to Raymond Carver, which was, uh, write what you know, um, and what do you know better than uh, your own secrets? So, it, again, it's kind of written in that spirit, and it's about some mental health challenges that I've faced. Um, it's part one of what will hopefully be a multi-part series, probably only two parts, but maybe three, um, that I hope to put up on here. And the music in the episode is by the Felice Brothers. Um, As always, you can support us by giving us a follow or by rating the show. And if you have a story, please send it in uh, via our website, raisedbywhoops.com. And this could include, you know, a story about your own mental health challenges. Um, this whole thing is just a means to connect, after all. So don't be shy. Um, take care and be kind to yourself and each other. Enjoy the show, and we will uh, talk to you again in the next episode. All right, take care. Bye. Leaving my coat at the Greyhound station Raising my arms in supplication Making some money, spending some money, drinking Pepsi, just walking around. Making people hate me, making people laugh. Fear drowning in a shallow bath. Feeling underdressed in the cold Midwest. Kissing my grandmother goodbye. Watching the crocuses bloom and fade. Easter bonnet from an old parade. Exchanging pleasantries under pleasant trees Over griefs and aperitifs These are the days Of the years Of my life American summer and it's all a breeze Buck-toothed girls in skin-tight jeans The mastiff heels, the accounts are solvent I'm crooning in the open west Meeting my baby at a greasy spoon Sitting alone in the Rembrandt room Walking in the shade where lilies weep Under clouds of marzipan Walking in the dark of Monument Valley Stray cats in a narrow alley The song was weird but still they cheered It's scrambled eggs in solitaire These are the days Of the years 
of my life Mopping up gore from the butcher's floor Feeling clean as a new drugstore Singing loud idiotic songs In the blue, blue mountains Walking along night long drives on the wild edges Apparitions in the neighbor's hedges Sinus drips in battleship Putting ashes in a rushing stream Watching a city turn into sea Standing in water up to the knee Missing my stop on a city bus In the land of propaganda These are the days Of the years Of my life Watching birds on a drowsy sea Sitting in the dark of a family tree Funeral flowers and paperwork Drowning my dreams in mountain streams Standing tall in a cap and gown In a house that's since torn down It's summer in the Catskills now Leisure classes in the mountain passes The jaws of life and the jaws of death Hearing secrets in a dying breath In a black four-door sedan Down the road to the end of the world These are the days Of the years Of my life These are the days Of the years Of my life first time it happened was on my 16th birthday. My parents, being the decent folks they were, took me out to my favorite restaurant to celebrate. It was a family-run Greek-Canadian place that I forget the name of, but they made a mean pork savlaki pita with tzatziki sauce, fries, and salad. We took our seats in the tattered vinyl booth, ordered our food, and tried to make small talk over the din of dishes clanking and 90s country radio. As mom and dad gossiped about people they knew who were dying, cheating, or drinking too much, I was busying myself with one of my many anxiety-induced habits, tonguing the canker sores and other imperfections inside my mouth. Just as our food arrived, my tongue skimmed over a lump on the roof of my mouth. I immediately felt sick as my mind, out of thin air, concluded that I had oral cancer. I had a history of catastrophic thinking and excessive worry, but fixating on my health was new. It was jarring. My mouth became dry, I felt feverish and faint, and in retrospect, it was probably my first experience having a panic attack. The thought of dying in my teenage years was terrifying, and I didn't eat a morsel of dinner. When mum and dad asked what was wrong, I told them my stomach felt off, and they bought it with no further questions. After leaving the restaurant, we drove to a bargain department store to pick up a few things. I followed Mum around the store, breathing rapidly, sweating, and feeling like I would explode if I didn't communicate to somebody what was happening. Finally, 
I overcame my embarrassment and blurted out to mom that in the restaurant, I had found a lump in my mouth and I was worried about cancer. She predictably told me I was being foolish and to stop worrying. Easier said than done, though. We drove home and I spent the rest of that evening pacing my room, trying to calm down. I eventually wore myself out and got some sleep, but little did I know, this was just the beginning. The following morning, when I awoke, the acute panic had worn off, but I still had a stubborn fear that there was cancer growing inside my mouth. I was distracted to the point of not being able to concentrate on anything but the lump, and I needed some relief. I consulted our family's collection of world book encyclopedias to research cancer symptoms. This was 1998, and my household still didn't have internet at the time. I flipped to the cancer article, and under symptoms, the first one staring back at me was an unusual lump or swelling. That sealed it. My heart sank into my stomach, and panic returned. I called the family doctor to set up an appointment. In the doctor's office a couple of days later, I sat in the waiting room wondering if I should be there. Was my concern legitimate, or was I just dreaming up worst-case scenarios? What if my paranoid thinking led to a waste of resources that could be put to better use? These questions were enough to get my sweat glands working again, and almost sent me into another spiral. Before I fully lost my wits, my name was called to see the doctor. If memory serves, my appointment lasted about three minutes. The doctor shone a light inside my mouth and said the swelling was likely due to a virus and to be patient and allow it to resolve itself. Fair enough. Reassurance was all I needed. I left with a spring in my step, ready to resume the remainder of my carefree teenage years. Not so fast. The lump did in fact go away. However, the next two years of my life consisted of several iterations of the above story with different imaginary ailments and conditions subbed in. I must have gone to the doctor a dozen times in those two years, and if I had my druthers, it would have been more. If I had indigestion, it was pancreatic cancer, while a headache meant a brain tumor. Some involuntary muscle twitch would send me down an ALS rabbit hole, and a mystery bruise or two indicated leukemia. A predictable pattern began to form every time a new symptom emerged. I would panic to the point of breathlessness and tears upon noticing it, and then I would begin the process of trying to assuage my fear any way I could. Usually this meant researching my symptoms via the aforementioned encyclopedia, and later when we had internet, Dr. Google. The odd time this would help, but mostly it made things worse. When my amateur research didn't reassure me, I would turn to my mother and pepper her with medical questions that she was by no means qualified to answer. To her credit, she was very patient and attempted to talk me down, but she must have been irritated to some degree. I didn't bother speaking to my father about it because I knew he wouldn't entertain what he would have termed childish stupidity. If my research or my mum couldn't bust through my wall of worry, I would book yet another trip to the doctor for my reassurance fix. Sometimes the anticipation and potential embarrassment of another doctor visit would lessen or eliminate the symptom, and I would cancel, but often I would go in, be told that everything was fine, and then return to some semblance of normality until the next symptom emerged. 
As I said, I was no stranger to negative rumination prior to that night in the Greek restaurant. It just didn't directly involve disease and death. When I was around five or six, I would regularly sleep on the floor in the hallway outside the bathroom because I felt like my chances of making it to the toilet to vomit were better than if I was in my room. I didn't have a perpetual stomach bug or anything. I was just scared of vomiting and making a mess. Later, when I was eight or nine, I became obsessed with dying in a house fire. I would wait for my parents to go to sleep so they wouldn't think I was nuts, and then I would go around our house unplugging things like the toaster and microwave, thinking that they would magically combust if left plugged in. I would also tie up curtains that I felt were a bit too close to our baseboard heaters, in addition to other fire prevention techniques I deemed necessary. This was a nightly routine for a while that took about 45 minutes to complete, and I couldn't sleep without doing it. On top of these somewhat unique examples, I also struggled with more common adolescent problems like extremely low self-esteem and body dysmorphia. All of this segued seamlessly into my experimentation and eventual chronic use of cigarettes, alcohol, cannabis, and pills starting at the age of 13. So the hypochondriasis, or illness anxiety disorder, as it is termed now, was a new twist on a years-long problem. The major difference was that my fear of vomiting or a house fire was easier to compartmentalize and move on from than my fear of getting sick and dying. I mean, there was always the chance of escaping a fire, and vomiting wasn't the end of the world. Dying from a terminal illness, though, was a more challenging obsession to navigate. This problem of mine that was once an annoying yet manageable inconvenience had mutated into a debilitating fear and disorder. Not surprisingly, my schoolwork, part-time job, and social life took a backseat to my perpetual worrying. When you spend most of your waking hours thinking that you're dying, homework, pumping gas, and dating become trivial. I was drowning in fear and I needed a life raft. I'm not sure if this happens to other people, but in my mind, this two-year period of my life is bookended very neatly with two vivid memories, and I find it strange how my brain has built this narrative, almost like a script. I guess we're all natural storytellers to some extent. It started, as you know, with finding the lump in my mouth in a scene that I remember like yesterday, and it ended, at least the acute part, with another tale that I can recall with precision. I would have been about 18, and my cousin Phil, who was the same age, was over for a Saturday visit. My parents were away, so it was just the two of us sitting in the living room, wondering what to do. As was the norm, I was physically present, but mentally miles away, worrying that the mild headache I had was the first symptom of glioblastoma. I remember being especially frustrated on this particular afternoon, furious with myself for allowing these mind games to ruin what should have been a fun time with a friend. Phil suggested that we walk to the schoolyard to play basketball, but I told him I wasn't in a good headspace. Feeling a familiar panic begin to creep in, I decided to act. As we've established, by 18, I was five years into my relationship with drugs and alcohol, but up until that point, I had mostly used substances in a recreational fashion, getting drunk on weekends with friends, smoking weed while skipping class, that sort of thing. It hadn't yet occurred to me that these substances could be used as medicine to ward off or dull intrusive thoughts. I guess you could say I had a light bulb moment that day hanging out with my cousin. 
While Phil sat bored and irritated with me for being a downer, I went to my parents' liquor cabinet and grabbed a bottle of Alberta premium whiskey and a shot glass. I poured and consumed five, maybe six shots in quick succession and returned to the living room with a new buoyancy. I allowed the whiskey to do its thing for a few minutes, and before long, we were down the road shooting hoops. I remember that afternoon on the court being rainy and kind of miserable, but the weather was overshadowed by the alcohol-induced freedom I was feeling. As I ran around on the wet cement, hair drenched, I felt reborn in a way. I had discovered the power of self-medicating. To be continued.